founders need to take care of themselves, but it's such a luxury. So you're making concessions between, okay, how long can I go with this mental pressure in my life versus knowing that you need to invest in your own business to make this keep going. I think sharing these things help people that are building their companies know that they're not alone. And people that are successful today have actually had really low points in their life. I think there's a transition, right? Especially as a founder between, I have to do everything myself because I'm the only person who knows this to letting someone else do it or letting a software do it. Like someone else has to raise your child. I actually don't believe that working more means you're more successful or more productive. It just means you're working more. We don't need to work more. We work enough. We need to work more creatively and automate what we can. Welcome to De-Stress Your Business, the podcast where we show you how to get incredible results in your business without constant stress. I'm Paddy Mann, a serial entrepreneur and founder at Air Manual, and today I'm joined by Melissa Kwan, who herself has bootstrapped three companies, the most recent of which is eWebinar, an online platform for running automated webinars. She runs these companies while traveling the world as a digital nomad and with a minimal team, outsourcing as much as possible. And like us, Melissa firmly believes in enjoying the journey rather than grinding out every day for some future date that might may never happen. And so like us, she's always looking for ways to remove the stress from her own businesses while continuing to grow them at an impressive rate. Good morning, Melissa. Good morning. Or I should say good evening because you're based in Bangkok now. <laughs> um, it's the afternoon, actually. Afternoon. Well, for yeah. me, it's, uh, it's, it's good morning, but it's great to have you on here. So you've bootstrapped three software businesses, which is a huge achievement in its own right, if a little crazy. Um, on this podcast, we're, we're all about understanding what causes stress, how to avoid it. So tell me, what's been the most difficult times for you as you've bootstrapped those companies and what lessons have you learned? Um, the most difficult time, like in general in my startup or this particular company? You choose. <laughs> okay. Um, well, I think the most difficult time of my company is now. So I've actually never built a company of this size in revenue. Like this is the highest revenue company I've ever built. Um, so everything is new. Um, everything that I thought I knew doesn't apply. Mm -hmm. And uh, a lot of the hardships that I experienced in the past with my previous companies, like not really knowing how to grow or where else to go and needing to learn new things in order to grow um, and, you know, keep our revenue at least the same, but it really should mm -hmm. be, you know, growing uh, month by month and, and year over year. So, um, just a lot of unknowns, I guess, right now and, and doing a lot of things that, you know, I know aren't going to work, but I have to do them anyway, because maybe they will work. So I think, you know, building a company is really doing a lot of things. I, I would, I would say nine out of 10 things we do, like don't have any result. Um, and a lot of things we do have a little result and kind of moves the needle a little bit. So mm -hmm. um, an attribution, as you know, is, is just super hard. So um, just not really knowing whether we're spending our time in the most effective and efficient places, like that's where we are right now. 
Cool. Give give me a little bit of context. Like roughly, where are you are you this time in terms of revenue and and where you're going and kind of what what's that nature of those challenges as to what's changed from where you were with your previous companies? Yeah. So um, we're I guess at about a hot, like one point three million ARR right now. Um, mm-hmm. We just passed a million not too long ago. Um, so we're you know, kind of just profitable. You know, I just started paying myself three months ago, having started this business four months ago or sorry, four years ago. Right. So everything has just taken a really long time. Um, we are approaching, you know, starting this company for five years, you know, in the, in the next, you know, in Q1 of, of 2024. Mm -hmm. So it just feels like we've been at it for a long time and, um, it still feels new because the things that we're doing are, are so new. Um, and also like, not only am I doing new things, right? Like my CTO co-founder has never built a software company or this big of a software from, from, you know, nothing. Right. So it's kind of new for him as well. My COO, who is really the jack of all trades has never done digital marketing, but had to learn digital marketing about two years ago because it was so important for our business. Um, the major difference between this company and the previous company is this is, like a SMB kind of self-serve SaaS, right? Like people come in on their own, it's all inbound. You put in a credit card, there's two weeks trial and then they convert on their own and they may stay or they may not. My previous company was all like enterprise SaaS. So it was sales led, right? This one is product led. So sales led is a lot easier because I came from enterprise sales. So every sale was me reaching out and I had full control over the sales cycle. And whether someone was going to buy or not, I knew right away. And yep. every deal was anywhere between, you know, 10,000 a year to a hundred thousand a year. Yep. So when we sold the company, we only had a hundred customers, right? Whereas this company, our starting point is, you know, $99, you know, up to, you know, whatever. Right. But most people pay anywhere between 99 to, to 199. So you just need, you know, a lot more customers to make up the bulk of your revenue. Um, in order to pay the team and, and pay yourself and pay the operations cost, right? So um, it's just a very, very different business. Um, and every, I guess, every milestone we hit, whether it's like going from zero to one, um, I still feel like we're going from zero to one, right? But let's say like your, you know, zero dollar to 300,000 a year is very mm-hmm. different than 300,000 to 600,000 is very different to a million. And now beyond that is also, you know, very different because you're exposing yourself to a lot more people, which means a lot more of the wrong customers are going to sign up. And so deciding where to spend mm-hmm. your time and who would attract and who not to attract and, and being better at saying no to certain people and letting people leave um, so that you could spend more of your time attracting the right customers who are going to actually invest their time to integrate your product into their into their business process and actually expand the usage of your product um, is you know something that we've just never had to do before. In, indeed, and I can relate to a lot of those challenges. And even coming with the same kind of skill sets, so having set up a previous company, I'd say the the layout of the environment that we operate in is very different than it was 10 years ago or even five years ago in terms of how what types of marketing work and uh how you you know essentially need to build communities and uh, work with content and so on and i know you're very active uh on linkedin you're very active you've got a podcast and so on um 10 years ago you could just be uh 
you know, kind of unique in your field and rely a lot more on using Google and review sites. Whereas it's a it's a hairy investment if you're if you're as you say not doing sales led, you're doing you know using marketing, using your community, and so on. Um, and you say nine out of ten experiments often feel like they uh, don't work. And at the same time, you've got to not let your customer base uh, not let your customer base, uh, customer base drop. So while there's a you know a sense of experimentation and kind of sense of uh, stress, perhaps you could share what 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 do you feel makes it the most stressful, and is that kind of a good stress that takes you in the right direction, or are there times where it feels like it's kind of holding you back and uh, you know harming you perhaps in terms of your well being or the business? Well, I mean, I think the biggest stresses always come from revenue, right? Like, um, and I think revenue solves every problem in a business. Like, why does a founder feel stressed out, right? Because a founder is always paying other people before herself. Mm. So you go years of paying other people's bills and not paying yourself. Like, either you're not paying yourself at all or not paying yourself a livable salary, Right. So, and even when you start to pay yourself a livable salary, you know, you have another investment. So then maybe you have to cut your own salary. But if you're, if everybody's being paid well, then it's a much different situation, right? Mm -hmm. You're growing this company. You're not worried if your revenue stays the same or maybe drops a bit next month because everyone's being paid well. So I think revenue solves every problem in a business um, and every stressful problem in a business, but we're not there. Right. And, you know, as we grow, we have to invest more in the business, right? Amazon's costing more money. Vimeo is costing more money. We have more support. So we have to hire a support guy, but then that person is really difficult to find. So then, you know, you're, you're constantly trying new people and training new, training new people as a platform gets bigger, you need a, a senior developer, but you are a bootstrap company. So where are you going to find the senior developer that can actually make a material difference in your business, but mm. not cost 20,000 a month? Because that's what they're going to cost, right? In especially yeah. US or Canada or parts of Europe. So where are you going to find that person, right? Where you're paying them enough in where they're living, um, but they're good enough to contribute to your business because you don't have the resource to hire three mediocre developers, right? You have to hire someone who's pretty good, but you know you can't afford the best, all right? So um, I don't know if that's like the right, or the answer that you're, you're looking for, <laughs> like that is the no. most, you know, that is the most stressful is like, you're constantly making concessions and optimizing on what you can actually afford. No, it's uh, it's, it's brutally honest. And I would say as you start, it's yeah, essentially your own ability to pay yourself. And then that stress of being able to pay uh, everyone else. And there's this constant feeling of if you had more money, you'd be able to, to take on the next challenge. You'd be able to hire that next person, take on that next hire, hire someone with more um, uh, uh, capability. And the, the moment you become slightly profitable, you get so much more freedom um, in what you're able to do and how you're able to approach the business and the other challenges that, that come up out with it. So I, uh, I, I, do, I do, do agree. It's a bit like a Maslow's you know, hierarchy of needs, and it kind of starts with survival. It starts with getting enough nourishment into your business because if you can't get that, that money, that revenue in, then, of course, that's going to be the thing that's biting you more than, than anything else. 
Yeah. I mean, I also like after a few years, right? I mean, people say like, okay, the founders need to take care of themselves, but it's such a luxury, right? Especially if you didn't raise money. So you're making concessions between like, okay, how long can I go with this mental pressure in my life versus like knowing that you need to invest in your own business to make Mm -hmm. this keep going, right? So is it three years? Is it four years? And, you know, recently we made the difficult decision to increase the prices of all of our legacy customers. Mm -hmm. So we raised prices um, for the first time, like two years after product launch, which was last year, but we held prices the same for people who signed up earlier. And we always knew that that wasn't going to be forever. And we Mm -hmm. particularly did not use the word grandfathering because that would insinuate that it's forever. We just held prices the same. And ironically, at the time, a lot of founders, especially bootstrap founders, knew that I was doing this, was saying, you need to just rip the Band-Aid off and increase prices of everyone. That's how you're going to get profitable and pay yourself. Like, that is the most important thing. Like, you're going to basically, like, I remember someone once told me when I was doing this last year, you know, 10% or 15% of your people are going to churn. Most people you won't hear from. And people that are going to churn are going to churn anyway. Because we're not talking big amounts. We're talking like 49 to 99, 99 to 199. So if you're actually delivering business value to a legitimate money-making business, they're not going to care about that, right? And the people that are super cost-sensitive, they're going to leave anyway because they're very cost-sensitive, right? So, you know, as most founders, I'm like, well, you know, I'm going to be different. (laughs) And at that time, I didn't feel like because we weren't profitable, I didn't feel like we could lose that audience. So I was scared to, to change that price. So we did keep it the same. And of course I, I regretted it immediately because we would have immediately had at that point, even if we take into account turn, we would have immediately had, you know, 25 to $30,000 extra to then redistribute between the founding team, including myself and my co-founder and, you know, not have to deal with what we're dealing with now. Right. Because what we're dealing with now is we held prices the same. We announced we were going to raise them in the new year. And then, you know, people get upset, right. Because they're like, well, you, you know, you lied to me, Mm -hmm. but you know, it was a difficult decision because it was like, okay, well, we're getting into a tougher place where our business is growth is slower because we're now bigger, we're generating more revenue. Yep. And, you know, if we don't raise prices, then maybe it's going to take an extra six months or whatnot to, to earn that, you know, 20 to 25K a month. Or it's been four years since product launch, we could raise prices and be okay with losing 10 to 15% of people that weren't paying that much anyway. But that would mean that the founding team could get paid a lot more right away. Yep. And I do feel like we're in that point of our business where we're just tired of not getting paid what we should be paying, right? Like my COO lives in New York and he took a 50% pay cut to work for us two years ago and he needs to pay his health insurance and whatnot, right? So he needs to get paid a real salary very soon, right? Otherwise, I'm going to risk losing this person. Right. My co-founder is in his fifties and has two kids and pays child support. You know, like these, these are real expenses, right? So you're balancing these stressful things with, I just want to keep my customer base happy. But if we're not happy, we can't keep the company and the product going. Yeah. And then you're, you're not enjoying the journey. It's, it's, and it's, it's, it's tough, right? Because you are, 
you can always see the potential of the business and what it could do in the future, but how long can you take that? So you're talking about the the time that you've been there. How many years are you into this, this stage of your journey with, with this company? Uh, well, I incorporated it in like beginning of 2019. So two months after I sold my previous company. Mm-hmm. Um, but it took us a year and a half to get the product out the door, right? So as far as the world knows, um, summer of 2020 um, is when we launched the product. Yeah, that's, that's interesting. It's almost uh, exact. I, I recently went to uh, Sastock, which is a big software um, uh, software as a service um, conference in, in Dublin. And was talking to a lot of founders about that moment where you've been there for somewhere between two and four years. And in your mind, when you started off, you had a business that could reach its potential in this this kind of time frame. And you suddenly realize to really reach its potential, it's going to be a decade. It's going to be a decade of investment. And a decade is a huge part of your life. It's a, you can't give up a decade and kind of grind at it without costing yourself relationships without costing yourself a big part of the opportunity of what you can do in your uh in your career so you need to find a way to make it work so you feel comfortable uh with with what you earn with the balance of you know what you're doing outside and inside of of work and so on so it's a really um a really tricky situation how big is your team at the moment i mean a decade is how people successful people measure success, right? I've been doing this for 13 mm-hmm. years. Like this is my third company. So even though, you know, I incorporated this almost five years ago, I've been working on this almost five years ago. Yep. I've been at this, what I feel like is the same grind for, for 13 years. Like I've been now running this company longer than my previous company. And I'd already sold that previous one. Mm-hmm. But mind you, it wasn't a great business that I could go on a decade for. Right. I think working on something for a decade is a luxury. Like you've made it like you've made it so, so much that it's become a real business and that you even have something to work on, mm-hmm. you know, for, for 10 years. Um, so I forgot your previous question because I went off track. <laughs> no, no that's, uh, that's, that's quite all right. I, I was just interested in um, what size your team currently yeah, is. Okay. Um, yeah. So everyone's a contractor, um, yeah. including, you know, my co-founder because we, including the co-founder. Okay. I mean, we, I think the word contractor is very misleading because a lot of people hear the word contractor and think, oh, they work for multiple businesses. Um, a contractor just means we had to hire outside the country where we're incorporated. Um, because we really can't afford to hire people local and have an office and have employees. So I also knew from my previous two businesses that I'm very bad at managing people, but I love building businesses. And because we're bootstrapped, we have to hire people where we can afford them. And a lot of times it's not in our home country. Mm -hmm. Um, And so as you said, like a decade is a long time. Like I incorporated this company in Canada, but I no longer live in Canada. (laughs) So a few years ago I was right. So, um, I knew that coming to this company, I only wanted to work with contractors. Um, number one, because I just didn't want to manage people, but number two, I wanted to hire people based on their skill sets and passion, um, not based on location. And I, I knew I wanted a fully remote team. So we work with, um, full-time contractors. If they're developers, it would be through a development shop. 
Mm-hmm. So we work with a development shop in in Vietnam where they have local PMs and, and whatnot to manage our team, but we are in touch directly with that team. So they right. are in our Slack as if, you know, we, like they are part of our company. We have another company, a Norwegian company that has an office in Ukraine. So we also hire from there. Um, and then there are, you know, there's my COO in New York. Uh, my co-founder is also a digital nomad, uh, who's also my life partner. And then we have a number of, you know, part-time contractors as needed, right? So whether it's content writers for different types of content, um, designer for when we actually need things designed. Um, so I would say a full-time team uh, is about 10 people. And then like as needed basis, probably we're working with three to five contra- contractors at a time. But sometimes we use them for an hour a month, right? Sometimes it's, you know, 20 hours a month, like just depending on, on what we need, but we, mm-hmm. we try to stay as lean as possible. And I think we've, we've done very good at, at being that. So interesting. Cause you, you, you talk about having contractors for two reasons. One, because they're working remotely and I'd say, so on my own companies, uh, Spidey Gap and Air Manual, we're both, uh, fully remote and we are also hiring, uh, remotely across the world. We've got people, every continent, um, but I, I think we do. We kind of look at them as being employees, and so we treat them yeah. as employees in the way that we manage and coach and support them, and we try and make sure that everyone's got the same set of um, you know, kind of benefits and, and, and so on and, and, and growth. Whereas you describe it one as being the, the remote aspect, but secondly as not wanting to be as active in the the management style of that, even with the full time workers. So why, why is that, and how does that play out for you? Yeah. I mean, I just know that we are so small that we have to work with people that we can trust, right. Mm -hmm. That we don't micromanage like people that, um, you know, are actually fairly senior in their, in their career. Like I think the model that we have doesn't really work for junior people, Mm -hmm. um, unless they're someone local that manages them. Right. Unless it's like a local kind of like development or, or recruiting company that kind of manages people in-house and maybe they, that person works with multiple, multiple different companies in their expertise. Um, and that's the reason, right? We don't, and we just like, we just can't micromanage. So we have to work with people that have agency and accountability over what they do. So a lot of times these, these people have had their own businesses, right? Maybe they, they were, or are an agency, like a single person agency. Right. Mm-hmm. So even if they spend the majority of time or even a hundred percent of their time with us, they are free to take another project, a smaller project, right, on the side, because they're their own business. And so in that way, I think it's worked out for us super well because we end up with people who either really vibe with that, like really love owning their own time and know they can deliver, mm-hmm. or people that weed out themselves very quickly. Right. So I think a lot of people think they are that person because they want the freedom, right? They don't want to be micromanaged, but they've never been in that environment before. So they sell themselves as this person and they work with us for a month and we already know that they aren't this person because I have to constantly check in with them for their deliverable, right? If you tell me something is coming on Friday and it doesn't like once or twice, maybe like, maybe that's just like getting used to the company, but for an entire month, I'm now chasing you for something that you've promised me. And that's a problem long-term. 
right? Because as a small company, I need to know that like everyone's delivering because we don't have real work hours. We just have deliverables, right? So, and yep. if you're not someone I can count on, you just don't fit this work culture. So because of the way we function, um, I think we just end up with a lot fewer people, but people that are way more effective and productive because they value this way of work. Yeah. And because it is so rare to come across a company that does give people full autonomy as long as the customer comes first. Cool. I like it. So we're, you're looking for senior people, highly proactive, highly dependable. Um, yeah. It sounds like you, you accept that there's going to be a level of churn. There's going to be people that kind of try to do this and they don't meet your standards or they're just not, they're just not set up for working in this way. What would be your tips to, to other entrepreneurs who are you know, interested in using contractors of, you know, perhaps going remote to, um, to keep the costs down while also getting senior people, um, but to, to get the best results from this kind of setup? I mean, I think if you are looking at outsourcing developers, you really cannot do that unless you have a CTO co-founder. Like if you are not the tech person, mm -hmm. um, you need someone on your side who is not on the dev shop side, yep. right? Um, so my co-founder is the CTO. So he manages the team in, you know, Vietnam and Ukraine. And he also codes himself like majority of the time. So um, if you don't have someone on your side that's thinking about your business 24-7 that you're not hiring out, it, that, that model is not going to work for you. Um, yep. Unless you maybe I've seen that work with some friends, but they have a much simpler product. Um, but, you know, ideally you want a co-founder that that actually manages the dev team, especially if you're outsourcing, not sitting in an office with them and checking their code and, and you know, really building that relationship with them. Um, yeah. And the second is we only hire through referrals. So with a bigger, you know, part of our team like the dev shop, we went to Vietnam and met like five different dev shops that were recommended to me through other friends. Oh, and, wow. you know, part of wanting to hire a dev shop in Vietnam is I've heard good things from Vietnam and good work culture, but we just also love going to Vietnam. <laughs> so we <laughs> want an excuse to travel there more. Um, and so we met with like five of them face to face, like looked at their office, really got to know the founders. And then we picked the one that we thought worked best for us. So, uh, and then with, yeah. And then with other, yeah. And then with other, like, you know, designers or, you know, writers, writers are, are really, really difficult. Um, and we only hire through people that have used them in the past. Um, and then of course we check their work. Um, not always the work that they give us. <laughs> like we basically look at, you know, references that they didn't tell us, right. References of work that they, that they didn't tell us. Um, and we never commit to a long contract unless there is, you know, a two to three month kind of probationary period, right? So a lot of dev shops will say, oh, um, you know, if you work with us, there is a 60 day termination or whatnot. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we try to negotiate that down to, to 30 days, but in the first 60 to 90 days, we usually try to have like a two week, um, like notice. So if we were to pay someone out, we're not like one to two months in the hole, right? We're, we're in the period. We're still trying to get to know each other. Yep. There is a two month termination versus like, or a two week termination versus, you know, 30 to 60 days. Which also sets the 
expectation in your mind and for, for them that you are going to be looking for results early on. You're going to be looking to see that the relationship, not necessarily long-term results, but the relationship is working, that it's active rather than seeing red flags and kind of going, well, we've got to check for three months before we can do anything. Yeah. And I, I would say in the beginning, it's more about like understanding your work culture and your attitude more than the thing you're creating, right? Because like if you are, even if you're someone who's junior, but you're someone who loves to learn, who's curious, who wants to solve problems, who wants to contribute, who loves the product and, you know, like you can't lie about those things, mm -hmm. right? You could lie about certain things or think you are certain things during the interview, right? But you can't pretend to be another person when you're on the team initially, so what we're looking for is like, are you going to work well with this team? And are you someone who has the ability and the capacity to learn and take on more, you know, more responsibility um, in the, in the long term? And even if your work is not like up to a certain standard immediately, are you someone who is open to criticism, right? Are you open to like correcting something? Right. And, and, I would say 50% of the time, people aren't that open to constructive criticism. And that's a problem because we can't micromanage. So if you're not open to making your work better or learning why, you know, what you delivered was not really up to standard, then in the long term, that's definitely going to be a problem because we're going to spend a lot of time fixing things. Cool. I like this. This is clearly something that's come for you um, uh, years of experience, and it's, uh, there's a ton of nuggets in there for anyone listening and thinking about using contractors and outsource. So, uh, making sure you've got that that fit. Um, I love the fact that you went out to Vietnam and, and actually saw people face to face in five different companies. I think for most uh, small businesses, most um, startups, kind of getting started with a, a contractor, you're gonna you talk to one or two and you start to feel exhausted by the very process of finding people and talking to them. And you, you often get, you know, you have this one hour video call and it feels like you're getting the same answers from both people. And how are you making this choice? But actually going there face to face, having referrals for each one and doing that is, is the difference between creating a, you know, starting off a, a successful long-term relationship and the risk of having a three-month relationship, which goes nowhere, and then that worry about whether it was even the right thing in the first place, and then trying again, and uh, and and so forth. Also, I love the point around for people who are looking to outsource engineering, the importance of having someone internally who knows their stuff. Um, I. I'm actually in a peer group with multiple um, uh, SaaS founders and many of them are outsourcing and the challenges that they have when they don't really understand it inside is, is, is big. Um, I don't know if you've read the Rand Fishkin's book. Um, so Rand Fishkin was uh, the, the founder of Moz and uh, he, he wrote a book, Lost and, um, Lost and Founder, which talks about his own lessons learned from a very challenging uh incredibly inspiring but hard-hitting uh a journey he had himself and yeah one of his own experiences was yeah you need a cto and eventually his, his kind of a co-founder had to tell him that i need to learn how to do this because otherwise we're not going to be able to go to the next level such an important thing if you're going to be outsourcing to a team otherwise you will not know 
what good looks like or how to hold them hold them accountable so really really good solid advice for anyone looking to do um looking to do that going on a slightly different angle i've been following you uh stalking you on linkedin for the last um few weeks and annoyingly it stopped showing me in the feed but i was doing my research uh at, at the weekend and i saw last week you shared um a series of darkest moments stories from other founders and there were some great stories of founders who were struggling to sell their product uh, they had their business hit terribly by covid had an amazing salesperson uh quitting after three months um one who had kind of sold hit their company and then struggled to replace it in their lives after they'd kind of come out the other end um what led you to kind of find and share these stories and what have you learned from doing so um, well, number one, it was practicality because I was moving to Bangkok <laughs> and I didn't have enough time to write my own content. So I had to come up with something creative, uh, to use other right. people's content, <laughs> um, part of hacking it as a, as a founder. Um, but the other thing is I was actually thinking about my darkest moment, uh, which I'm, I'm actually going to share today, um, in linked on LinkedIn. And I thought a lot of founders must have these stories. And that we never talk about because we normalize mm -hmm. that journey. And even when I think about my own darkest moment, like I knew, I know because I remember how bad it was, but I think human beings are like made, I guess, designed to forget pain. So I knew that was painful, but I don't remember how it felt. Um, mm. And so I thought that was kind of interesting. And I think that's why we kind of normalize it, but. I think that especially on social media, everybody just shares like their successes and it just feels like there's everyone's killing it and you're not. Yep. And so on LinkedIn, like I actually write more about my failures and things that didn't work and things that I have had to learn more so than the things I did that, that did work. So really like the other 99% of my life. And so I, I wanted to kind of leverage that, um, you know, other people's stories um, because it's, I, I think it lends more credibility than just showing my own, um, to let other people know, cause I know a lot of bootstrap founders, you know, follow myself as well, um, that everyone's had these stories, right? Because I share what I share, I get a lot of people message me on LinkedIn saying, you know, Hey, thanks for sharing this. I'm actually going through this myself. And it's, you know, mm -hmm. it's a very lonely journey. Um, and so I think sharing these things help people that are building their companies know that they're not alone. And people that are successful today have actually had really, really low points in their life yep. um, that it wasn't always, you know, rainbows and unicorns and, you know, all these successes that they talk about. Um, and I would say like, after asking for these stories from my friends, like, like I'm impressed and amazed at the stuff that they've gone through. Like, this is stuff that I, I've known a lot of these people for 10 years and you know, even though I knew it was hard for them, I didn't know that they had gone through this, this one thing that they had shared. So, um, yeah, I think I, one of it was one, one thing was practicality, but the other thing was like, I just think that these stories are so important because so many of us are going through these journeys that they think is uniquely hard for them, but it's yeah. not, it's hard for everybody, but we just yeah. find a way through. Uh, I, I love that you're you're sharing it because, as you say, like there's so much out there which is this sugar-coated view of the world, and whether it's the you know companies that get into one billion or a hundred million or ten million or what whatever, 
it's almost unhealthy. It's almost like looking for an Instagram feed of, you know, people's perfect bodies. It's not reality. It's great to have this, this aspiration. Um, but even the, be- even the ones that make it have often gone, gone through terribly, terribly hard times. And then yeah. there's the 90%, the 99%, uh, many of who will also by most measures be, you know, have, have some levels of success and yet you don't see it. You don't see the reality and people don't like talking about it. I think I even saw a, was it Twitter or a quote by Elon Musk and the people are saying, what, you know, he must experience pain and so on. Why don't you share it? And he's like, yeah, like he goes through incredible levels of stress and almost, you know, depression and angst and burnout, but he's like, but no one wants to hear about it. Uh, it yeah. <laughs> and also like the stories that I share, I make sure that they're not from unicorn founders because I feel like it's so unrealistic. It's so far removed from reality. And, you know, there's, there are enough people sharing stories of the 1% of the 1%. Hmm. Like, honestly, those stories are not interesting for me because it's not relatable. So I, I make sure that the things that I share are of people that we can relate to. Yeah. Right. People that are just like us, the, the other 99%. So even though like, the founders stories that I've shared are not unicorn founders. They might be people that you've you know, heard of through the grapevines or maybe they're active on social media, but these are people that have, you know, one or 2 million in ARR or, you know, sold a company for, you know, eight to nine figures, not 10. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. So, um, I think that's, that's even more important. Right. Um, and, even with, you know, you had mentioned I had a podcast, like I make sure that the people that I interview are people that are just like us. Like there are enough people that are interviewing like celebrity founders. Um, but, you know, I think the important stories are, are the other 99% because that, that is what makes us feel less alone. Cool. I, I love that. And I love that you're, uh, that you're, you're doing this both on, on LinkedIn and in your podcast and, and so on. Final question. Um, from myself is going to be that I was listening to uh, one of the uh, podcasts. Actually, it was a guest podcast for you. Uh, you've been interviewed by, um, I'm going to pronounce this wrong, Lloyd Lobo yeah. um, on his uh, Traction podcast. And you talked about how business owners set out building a business so they can become free. Uh, and yet they end up tied to the business as it grows. So they're not free. And worse yet, they lose sight of the original goal. How, how common do you think this problem is from having engaged and, and talked to all these founders and seeing them on, on LinkedIn and what steps are you currently taking to try and avoid it? Yeah. I mean, I think it's very common because, um, especially in the, in the earlier stages, right. When you can't hire a big team and you do a lot of things yourself, right? Like being able to hire things and delegate or hire people and delegate things that you don't want to do like that is a luxury, right? And that, you know, you can only do with more revenue. And I think there's a transition, right? Especially as a founder between like, I have to do everything myself because I'm the only person who knows this. I'm the only person who knows my pitch, or I'm the only person who knows accounting, or I'm the only person who knows how to spec out this roadmap Mm -hmm. to, you know, letting someone else do it or letting a software do it. Mm-hmm. Right. Like, um, or needing to talk to every customer versus, you know, sending them to a video or having your sales guy talk to them. Right. There is, it's a tough transition 
right? Like someone else has to raise your child, right? So, <laughs> um, yeah, and I, I think it's really common, but I think most people kind of overcome that. But it's it's much harder for small companies, in, including mine, right? So, um, I feel like I don't have to take proactive steps to, um, you know, to make sure I don't fall into that because I actually don't like working that much. So my entire life is figuring out how do I work less and do more? How can I work more creatively and not work more? Because I, I actually don't believe that working more means you're more successful or more productive. Mm -hmm. It just means you're working more. We don't need to work more. We work enough. We need to work more creatively and automate what we can, right? And, and actually, that's why eWebinar was created was because I was the person doing all of the live webinars and demos and trainings. And it, I was so tied to my computer while digital nomading. So I was doing all these onboarding webinars for, for new customers that would sign up, but at opposite time zones of the world, that I was imagining the software that could deliver a video like a webinar that's mm -hmm. maybe even more engaging than live. Um, so I didn't have to be there all the time and 24 seven so that I could actually live my life while building my business. Um, so I feel like I don't have to take proactive steps for that because I'm already pretty proactive, <laughs> but I am delivering and creating a software that could allow other people to free themselves, you know, specifically from running live demos and, and live trainings and onboarding so they can really go and live their life and, and do other things. That's, uh, that's awesome. And where can our listeners go if they want to find out more about eWebinar, about your podcast, about you? Yeah. So if you want to connect with me, um, just go to LinkedIn. My last name is spelled Kwan, K-W-A-N, Melissa Kwan. And I write um, two to three times weekly about my own journey, bootstrapping three startups. Uh, if you have any questions for me, um, that's the best place. And uh, if you want to learn more about eWebinar, how it can help you and your business or find our podcast, just go to eWebinar.com. Um, and that's exactly as it's spelled, eWebinar.com. There's a demo on there that you can join at any time, of course, delivered through the software itself. And I manage the chat. So any questions about the product or myself, my journey, you can also type it in the chat box throughout our demo. That's awesome. Thank you so much, Melissa. Uh, it's been a, it's, it's been great speaking. Uh, I've learned a, a ton about uh, your journey and about how to work contractors and some of the rules that you can be taking there. Love what you're doing in terms of sharing your own uh, challenges and darkest moments. And for the, uh, the other founders there, I'm going to be checking out your LinkedIn stream later to read more into your darkest, uh, darkest moment. And I love the final reflections on freeing up your time and and what success means and your own admission that you don't like working that much it's not that you don't <laughs> like working but it's not that's that's not why you're here that's not what what you're on earth to do uh, and i'd recommend to other listeners and, and perhaps yourself melissa uh, to check out an early interview i did with uh, jordan fleming because often when i'm talking to founders they're, they're, they're inspired they want to hear from other founders that are hitting you know uh getting to 10 million or more in in revenue and for me it's like i don't care about whether you're not got to 10 million the story which really inspired me recently was talking to jordan fleming who's getting to 10 million but he's doing it while working five hours a week starts his day with a swimming pool <laughs> talking wow. to people that he likes it's like that's that for me that's success so uh good, good on him uh final request is if you enjoyed this uh this episode uh and um uh, and got value from it then please do follow the podcast please do share it with others other than that 
Thank you so much for listening. Have a great day and have fun.